Hello, baseball fans. Welcome to Sully Baseball. This is the podcast where there is no offseason, and we talk about baseball 52 weeks out of the year, including after the World Series and all through winter and all that stuff. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. Today's date is, what the hell is today's date? Today's date is the 13th day of June, 2017, and I am currently recording this in a Sully Baseball studio in Pasadena, California, overlooking the historic Rose Bowl. Um, let's do a little uh, house cleaning. Yeah, I'm posting another podcast this week. I was I didn't post one for 11 days, so I'm making up for some lost time here. I'm going to be making a few announcements coming up soon about some of the changes to the podcast into the Sully Baseball world. We're going to be unveiling the new, what is it, what the, the In Memoriam video is going to be unveiled uh, the day before the All-Star Game. So July 10th, so a little less than a month from now, will be the In Memoriam video. And around that time, I'm hoping to have the relaunch of the new version of the podcast, which will involve more uh, audience participation, which will involve more questions, will involve uh, calling in to a voicemail, leaving questions. All sorts of things like that are being designed for the new version of Sully Baseball, which will be a new RSS feed. You understand it'll be a brand new podcast. You'd have to resubscribe on iTunes and on Stitcher and on SoundCloud and all the stuff that you on Google Play and all the stuff that you listen to me on now. It's going to be a brand new and we're going to start fresh. So Sully Baseball will still exist. The old RSS feed will still exist on your iTunes if you want to go back and listen to old episodes and everything. But it's a it's a brand new day. Brand new day, which is going to be somewhere in the middle of July, right around the All-Star break. So we get the second half of the season and the off-season all beginning, and that should be, I don't know, it should be exciting. It should be exciting because uh, I think that it's going to be, I think the podcast needs a, a fresh start, and I think going on a new direction. Now, one thing that I will do is I was sort of figuring out what I'm going to be doing with the podcast moving forward. Doing the teams that should have won segment, the little 10-minute segment I do at the end of each of these podcasts where I check off another of the teams that should have won is probably not going to fit in the new format. And so, you know, and inevitably, if I don't check off some of those teams, there will be people saying, well, you see, you did the Giants, you did the Red Sox, you did the big market teams, but you forgot us. You never did the Diamondbacks. You never did what was you never did the Brewers. You never did what were some of the other teams I haven't done? You didn't do the Brewers yet. That's right. You didn't do the Padres. You didn't do the Rays. You didn't do the Blue Jays. What a surprise. You haven't done the Rockies. Yeah, all right, fine. Fine. So what I may wind up doing, because those are short, you may see a little flurry of little ten minute mini episodes as I just try to check all those off and appease you all, and appease thee. Um, anyway, so these are all just things that I'm going to be doing because, look at I'm trying to expand the Sully Baseball universe, and there may be some more video stuff, there may be some more interactive stuff, and I think it should be a lot of fun. So hopefully you all, if you all are out there and you're listening to me, 
and I see you know I see the people who are there every single day, you know, help me bang the drum, get some announcements, get some momentum going here for the new version of the Sully Baseball, which is, I'm tentatively calling Sully Baseball Live for uh, the middle of July, about a month from now, the new thing will be uh, unveiled. Anyway, hey, uh, thinking about making big changes for the future, uh, the MLB draft is on, it's going on right now, and once again, it's an, and trying to cover it is, is a classic act of futility, because lots of things can happen. You know, lots of things can happen to players, lots of things can happen to, uh, you know, someone who looks like a great uh, prospect turns out to be a bust, someone who looks like he's going to be the next great, you know, player of all time turns out to be terrible, someone who's drafted deep in the first round turns out to be great. You know, it's just, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to figure that out and it's hard to it's hard to gauge. Now, it's becoming, they're, they're trying to make it more and more, I don't want to say scientific, but more and more of uh, the uh, uh, understanding the how to scout a player and how who the best types of players will be. You know, it's becoming, le- trying to make it less of a crapshoot. And we will see how, you know, accurate that is. You know, Dansby Swanson was the number one pick overall in 2015, and he's already a fine major leaguer. Carlos Correa was the number one pick overall in 2012. He's already a a potential MVP candidate. We'll see how Mickey Moniak, is that how you pronounce his name, who was the number one overall pick last year for the Phillies. We'll see, you know, Mark Appel, who was the number one pick overall a few years ago. Um... You know, he's he's kind of floundering in the Phillies organization. We'll see how Brady Aiken turns out. You know, we, you know, number one picks overall. Sometimes David Price turned out to be a star right away. You know, Justin Upton turned out to be a, a fine player. Bryce Harper turned out to be an MVP candidate. David Price turned out to be a Cy Young candidate almost right away. Then Matt Bush, you know, went through heaven and hell and turned out to be a middle reliever. Tim Beckham, who was the number one overall pick in 2008, was stinking up the joint, looked like he was going to be one of the great busts, and now is having an okay year. Granted, they could have drafted Buster Posey, but that's an example. Tim Beckham looked like he was a, a great young player to you know plug right into a talented Rays team. And, you know, he's it took, it took his time, <laughs> but maybe he'll be a latter-time success story, kind of like Josh Hamilton, a number, another number one pick overall who, you know, took a while to, you know, gestate. Luke Hochaver was the number one pick overall in 2006. He didn't have a great career by any stretch of the imagination, but was a valuable reliever on the Royals team that wound up winning the World Series. Then, of course, you know, I wanted to take a, I mean, I'm not going to go in a deep dive, but I mean, you almost can't judge a draft based on, you know what what's happening that particular day. I I've said what they should do is they should have the draft, but then review the draft of five years before, ten years before, and twenty years before, because that's really the only way you can judge it. It's I mean in the NFL and the NBA, you've seen the players p- participate on a college level against each other, with a few exceptions of someone like you know, LeBron or Kevin Durant or, or, or Kevin, I'm not, Kevin Garnett, sorry, or, or Kobe Bryant, you know, some of these players who went straight from 
high school, most of the time they're playing against similar talent on the level of college football or college basketball. You have high school players and you have college players. And you don't, they're not always, you know, picking a – they're not always going to be, um, you know, the, the, the level of play is not always going to be consistent. So, you know, it makes, for, it makes for a strange understanding of how to judge talent against each other. You know, we go back 20 years ago, um, the 1997 draft – and that's a strange draft that happened that year. You know, that was the year that J.D. Drew was the number two pick overall by the Phillies, and he didn't want to sign with the Phillies. And he wound up playing independent ball and was hated. Oh, he became a, a, became a brat. He was a brat. And, and because he was, you know, drafted by the Phillies and he wouldn't want to accept it and became hated in Philadelphia. And he wound up you know, sitting out a year playing for the St. Paul Saints and the next year being drafted by the Cardinals. Now, he wound up having an, J.D. Drew had an okay career. He did. And, you know, as a Boston Red Sox fan, J.D. Drew got some very big hits in the postseason in 2007 when they won the World Series. Um, had a an all, very good, fine season in 2008. You know, he always had a really super high OPS. He just couldn't stay healthy. The guy could not stay healthy in his career, except when he had the two times he managed to stay healthy, 2004, 2006, just happened to be years he could go out and opt out as a free agent. So, I mean, he cashed in, made millions and millions of dollars, helped win a World Series for the Red Sox, a grand slam he hit in the ALCS, uh, basically all but clinched the ALCS for the Red Sox, and he wound up batting you know, 333 in the World Series, and then got huge hits, including a big walk-off hit against Tampa in the ALCS in 2008, and hit a bunch of postseason homers for the Red Sox. So, I mean, as, as a Boston fan, I can't really say anything bad about him, even though I desperately didn't want the Red Sox to sign him. But he was probably the biggest name. He, he was a huge name, Lance Berkman, who turns out to be a jerk, and a lot of players who had, you know, good, solid careers, just not superstar careers, like Vernon Wells or John Garland or, you know, Adam Kennedy or Jason Wirth are all players who were drafted in the first round of the 1997 draft 20 years ago. Matt Anderson was the number one pick overall for the Tigers, and he was, you know, an adequate reliever for a while. Then he sustained some injuries. And, of course, there is kind of an urban legend about, Matt Anderson, and that is he threw was involved in some sort of octopus tossing thing at uh, a Tigers game where they were doing a a octopus toss to get playoff tickets for the Red Wings when the Red Wings were kicking ass. And he, like the day he was involved in that, or the next day, he had discovered he had some sort of tear in his chest, and so people like to, uh, ass- you know, equate things like he tore his, you know, he got this career-ending tear because he wanted to win tickets for a Red Wings game. All right, I don't know if that's exactly what happened. That makes for a nice story, and sometimes the story is more uh, sellable than what really happened. But, you know, that's an example of 20 years ago. You looked at a draft. I'm sure everyone walked away from the draft thinking they got their next great superstar, 
And in the end, most teams got, you know, most teams just got an adequate player who made it to the major leagues. You know, that's usually what happens in the draft. And so when you t- when you see people analyzing the likes of, you know, Royce Lewis and Hunter Green and Mackenzie Gore and Brendan McKay and all the top picks in this draft, most of those picks are just going to be, you know, if they make it to the majors, they'll be okay. They'll be all right, nothing great. You know, because that's just the nature of the beast. That's the nature of the draft. You know, going through it, I don't know. I've not seen any of these players' names, you know, before today. Trevor Rogers, there you go. That's a combination of Steve Trevor and Steve Rogers, Wonder Woman, Captain America, got drafted by Miami. That's great. Um, Clark Schmidt from University of South Carolina got drafted by the Yankees. Will Clark Schmidt be part of the next great Yankee team, or is that going to be like, who the hell was that? The Red Sox drafted someone named Tanner Hoke. Is it Hauk or Hoke? And he was a you know, college pitcher. Is he going to be any good? I don't know. Neither do you. The one name that did pop out is uh, Bubba Thompson. He got drafted by the Texas Rangers. Texas Rangers drafted an outfielder from Alabama named Bubba. And I want him to succeed because baseball needs Bubbas. There are lots of, there, there are not enough Bubbas in baseball, and baseball needs Bubbas. Um, to show you how old I am, the Reds drafted a shortstop named Jeter. Jeter Downs. He's named after Derek Jeter. We're already having people named after Jeter drafted into baseball. He got drafted by the Reds. Now, remember, the Reds had a chance to draft Derek Jeter, so they're finally drafting Jeter. Now, here's an interesting thing, and one of the things that I find interesting about this year and this year's draft is that the number one pick overall was Royce Lewis, who was a shortstop from a high school in California. Now, it could have been another player from California named Hunter Green, who was a looked upon as a first-round caliber player, as a position player, and as a pitcher. I would love it if the Reds made him a two-way player. I really doubt that they're going to. But the, the And Mackenzie Gore was, some people thought he should have been the number one pick overall. All of them are high school players. The first college player was picked by the Rays. Who was, they picked a first baseman named Brendan McKay, but that's neither here nor there. Um... The Twins drafted Royce Lewis. Now, Jim Callis, who I've had a couple of nice interchanges with over the years, has his analysis on MLB, <clears throat> just said he was um, he's a legitimate number one pick, top tier of players, uh, top tier of five players in the mix, uh, his best combination of anyone in the draft, elite speed, and his real knack for squaring up the ball. So the Twins drafted the shortstop uh, Royce Lewis to plug into their system. Now, the Twins have already... Uh, a very good and and you know, a, a, a very good farm system going right now. And Nick Gordon, who is the son of Tom Gordon, the brother of D. Gordon, is in Double A right now. As their top prospect is a shortstop and is hitting the snot out of the ball in Chattanooga. So maybe they're thinking Nick Gordon stays at shortstop. Royce Lewis maybe a lot of times a shortstop finds another position. I don't know the answer to that. Neither do you. Uh, they have right now. Uh, Miguel Sano at third base on the major league team. 
uh, Jorge Polanco is already there. Brian Dozier is still there. I mean, they have a lot of young <clears throat> infielders who are there. Dozier would probably be a trade candidate. Um, but, you know, they're drafted. They, you do what you're supposed to do, which is we're going to draft the best player available and see what we can do. And they write, you know, the Twins right now have a lot of young talent in their farm, have a, young, a lot of young talent on the major league level, and they just drafted number one pick overall. It's a good time for the Twins organization. And now comes a philosophical question. The Twins went into this year as a rebuilding season. The Twins have a ton of young talent on their team, and not quite, you know, we're going into this year in the same division as the Cleveland Indians. Now, as I said many times before, there is a tremendous amount of parity on the, in the American League. So, you know, you could make a case for any team in the American League to have put together a winning season and possibly a playoff contention. I thought the Twins would be a stretch. The White Sox, the Twins, or a couple of teams that seemed like they would be a stretch. Oakland, sadly, as well. But remember, in 2015, <clears throat> excuse me, under manager Paul Molitor, the Twins put together a surprising winning season. Nobody really saw this winning season coming. And they wound up seeing the, you know, the emergence of a couple of players on the team. And, you know, and Eddie Rosario, probably, you know, some, some of the players who came up and looked pretty good along the way. Miguel Sano made his first appearance on that team. And they contended for a wild card spot deep into the year and ultimately faded out but had a winning season. Okay, that was cool. No one was expecting to see that coming, especially for a team that you know, was outscored by three or four runs during the regular season. So they probably should have been about a 500 team. Last year, they, they went 59 and 103. They had the worst record in baseball and picked first overall. So it makes you think, okay, that 2015 was a fluke. They're rebuilding, and maybe Paul Molitor's job is on the line. Now, let's cut to this year. Let's cut to 2017. The team is putting together a surprising run. They also have probably one of the most valuable trade chips that you could possibly have right now in Irvin Santana. Irvin Santana is having, you know, a wonderful year. He's having a, a, uh, a season which could be a potential Cy Young candidacy. He signed in 2008, has an option for 2009. So it's not a long-term commitment they have. But as a trade ship for a pitcher who's had some very good years recently, some very bad years recently, that he is at age 34 putting up these numbers. There's one thing you should learn and know and, and digest and ingest and, and protest at this point, and that is when pitchers get to be in their 30s can go from the best in baseball to worthless faster than you can say Roy Halladay, faster than you can say Tim Lincecum, faster than you can say Cliff Lee. So when you see someone coming up and he's having a spectacular season, you like wins, he's got eight of them. You like ERA, he's, got, he's at 220. He's got three shutouts so far. He's already thrown 90 innings. You know, he, he doesn't walk anybody. And that he's having this kind of season. 
for a team that is building for the future, that you would look around and see so many teams <coughs> could use, sorry for that little cough, could use a pitcher of his caliber to the point where the Twins could look up and say, hey, we could get two, maybe even three, but certainly two young players to build this team and to, to maybe a good young pitcher for the future, good young everyday player. They could flip Irvin Santana for that right now and keep building this farm system to the point where you're like, hey, th- this, is, this is looking good. This is looking like a team that is building for a very bright future and could potentially contend for many years to come if all of them coalesce at the same time. But it brings up around a philosophical question. And that question is this. We're now in mid-June. We have about a month before the All-Star break. We have a month and a half before the trade deadline. And if Santana keeps playing like this, his value will be sky high. The problem, and this is a weird problem to have, is the Twins are in first place. They've lost their last darn two-game losing streak. They're only one game ahead of the Cleveland Indians, but they are in first. And have a better record than the wildcard teams that would be the, either the Indians or the Rays, or the wildcard contenders. And you're looking around, <clears throat> the Orioles are in the middle of this terrible streak right now, and who knows if they're getting their act together or not. Tampa has been up and down. Toronto, no one can quite figure out. I mean, that, every team in the American League East could wind up having a winning record. Detroit can't figure out what's happening here. They're good, they're bad, they fall apart. The Royals and the White Sox are in full rebuild mode. And the AL West, every team other than the Astros, kind of stink right now. <clears throat> yeah, the Rangers are on a winning streak, and, but they're all sub-500 in mid-June. And what I'm saying is this. What should the Twins do? Because they will never, ever, ever have an opportunity to see Santana be worth this much. Santana will never be worth this much again. His value is spectacular. And every team that has put all their chips in the center of the table with a sense of desperation to win in 2017 would overpay for someone like Urban Santana. And in the end, that will be extraordinarily valuable. Let's say they get two, I mean, not even pitchers, two everyday players that they plug into their lineup. They can say for the next five, six years, these two positions are set because we flipped Irvin Santana at the right time. That makes sense to do. And if the Twins were, you know, were a game or so under 500, it would not even be an issue. But they're not. They're four games above 500, which is not spectacular, but compared to the rest of the American League, it kind of sort of is. So there is a quandary that's going on, and it's not an easy one to solve. Especially when you have a team that is filled with so many young players and so many young pieces on that team. 
Look, I'm not a big purveyor of you need the veteran leadership and everything like that. I don't think that's as valuable to a team as shoving in as much talent as possible. That being said, there is something valuable, I believe, to being involved in a pennant race. You've seen a lot of teams that make that transition from losing, losing, losing to being a championship caliber team or a playoff caliber team a lot of times have that airlock season. Have that season where, hey, they had a winning record last year. Some of those players got used to playing in some pressure games in September. It doesn't always go like what happened with the Rays, which is terrible, 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 terrible. Holy shit, we're in the World Series. A lot of times you have a season like Kansas City had in 2013 where they didn't, they weren't really contenders, but they at least put a winning product on the field. You know, you saw that with a, there was a, uh, you know, the A's in 1999, I remember the same thing happened. Oh, they're, they're actually the A's were a decent team this year. And then they went on to be on the playoffs a bunch of years in a row. Sometimes you need that one bit of an airlock to say, oh, wait a minute, are we good? We're not bad. And maybe next year we'll be better. <clears throat> it may be also look up and say, wait a minute. What if a lot of these teams in this parody-filled American League, what if a bunch of them play below expectations? Maybe making a wild card would be a positive step for this team. I completely believe it was for the 2015 Houston Astros. And, you know, you're, the Twins are trying to build something for the long term here. A bunch of young, talented players. Some of them have had success. Some of them, like Buxton, haven't so far. But maybe getting them into the playoffs or maybe getting them into a meaningful September would be positive. But then comes the rub. What if they have a crap month? A team that was the worst team in baseball in 2016 is one crap month from falling sub-500 and out of contention. And if that happens and you're sitting with Irvin Santana and it's August and you can't trade him because there's no way you'll be able to sneak him through waivers, or if all of a sudden he falls apart like a lot of pitchers in their mid-30s do anyway, you look up and say, we had a chance to get a couple of young players into our system and we decided not to because we decided to make a run for the AL Central, which they probably won't win. I mean, of all the bad things that have happened to Cleveland so far, they're only a game out behind an overachieving team. The Indians are one acquisition of an Irvin Santana, a decent starting pitcher away from saying, okay, this central is ours. One of the reasons why the Indians looked like they were such a lock to win the AL Central is all the other teams were in rebuild mode. And with the Twins surprising people, you have to... This is what the middle section of this season is so agonizing. Because you don't know what you are at this point.
This is the hardest. I would say the Twins front office have one of the hardest decisions, and it all surrounds Irvin Santana because it deals with the philosophy. We are much better than we are on paper in terms of the standings. We're playing much better than we thought. It's not early. We're beyond the one-third mark of the season. We're approaching the nominal halfway mark of the season, which is the All-Star break, in first place, which by any definition means you're a contender. But it's so fragile. And, you know, if you trade Irvin Santana right now, just in terms of interest in the box office, you're basically giving up on the team just at the time when kids are getting out of school and showing up, hey, the Twins are in first! Do you take the risk of a team that will fall apart, that is one mild bad month away from falling apart and making it a forgettable season? Remember the Brewers were in first place around this time a few years ago and they finished with a losing record? I bet you forgot that. There's always teams that are, hey, I'm not expecting them to be in first place. They're doing great. Remember the Texas Rangers in 2004? I bet you don't. They were in first place a chunk of the season. Buck Showalter wound up winning manager of the year. How surprising that Rangers team was. Do you remember them? No, because they finished behind the Angels and the A's. You don't remember because they fell apart down the stretch. And sometimes the surprising teams hold on. I'll be dipped. The Diamondbacks won the division in 2011. The Nationals won the division in 2012. The A's won the division in 2012. I didn't see that coming. Sometimes you don't see it coming. And it's worth it to get into the postseason because you don't know. You could wind up facing a team that's in a slump. And I personally don't know which way to go. The cold-hearted Michael Corleone, the baptism mentality of, well, do you know what? It's more important. You know, it's the likelihood of them winning the World Series in 2017 is much less than the likelihood of them winning World Series in the future with a ton of young talent on their team, of which Irvin Santana would not be part of that World Series team in the future. That's cold-hearted facts. And then there is the sense of, but wait a minute, we're the twins. Can we afford to not go for it if we're suddenly handed a chance to go for it? What if a team that is assembled with a bunch of spare parts and young players that contends in a year they're not expected to contend, like the 2013 Red Sox, Suddenly everything falls into place and they wind up dancing up and down on the mound. The Marlins have two world championships that came out of nowhere. One because they just bought a bunch of players for one year and another is they had a bunch of talented players. They happened to catch the Giants in a, in a series where they won a couple of tight games with plays at the plate. And then they happened to beat the Cubs when Dusty Baker fell asleep at the switch. And they happened to beat the Yankees. And all of a sudden, the Marlins are a champion. They went for it. This 
Irvin Santana question is the most difficult question and one that your pal Sully does not have an answer to. We have to see how this unfolds. And if it unfolds with Irvin Santana pulling a Rodney Dangerfield on the golf course going, ow, my arm, then then it's a catastrophe because that's the worst case of all. I'd like to see it unfold. I'd like to see the Twins contend. I have no ill will against the Twins. I like the fact that they're still in Minnesota, that they didn't fold or didn't move to North Carolina, that they now play in an open-air ballpark, which is bananas. I like the fact that, the, that you could have the Rockies play the Twins in the World Series in late October in outdoor stadiums. Just to see the, all the new cast members of the Fox show covered in snow at the World Series. Part of me wants to see that. Why? Because I'm kind of a jerk sometimes. But this is the tough part. The Twins are building for the future. They picked number one overall. Got a lot of talent in their farm. But the Twins are facing a present as well. One that could be a great learning block for the Sanos and all the other players on the team. And it also could be a missed opportunity to put more young talent in that system. It's something to think about. I'm sure they're thinking about it like crazy in the Minnesota front office. Now, with all this Twins talk, you would think I'd be doing the team that should have won for the Minnesota Twins. But here's the deal. I've already done it. 2006. 2006 should have been the year the Twins won. That would have been the greatest Twins championship of all time. So I can't do that. I can't do Twins twice. So in honor of the Minnesota Twins manager, Paul Molitor, I will talk about the Milwaukee Brewers. Now the Brewers, Milwaukee is one of those franchises that I'd like to see win the World Series along with the Washington Nationals for the reason that it will make it easier to talk about world championships in cities and fan bases looking for a world championship. It just would make it, it would make it easier because the situations in uh, Milwaukee and the situations in Washington make it difficult to talk about those fan bases. What I mean by that is that the Washington Nationals have never won a world championship, but the Washington Senators did in 1924. The Milwaukee Brewers have never won a world championship, but the Braves won the world championship in 1957 when they were in Milwaukee. Now, you could make the argument, and it is a compelling argument, that the Braves should never have left Milwaukee. And at one point, with Charlie O'Finley playing footsie with every city on the planet Earth to move the A's when he was running them in Kansas City, at one point, one of the teams he was playing footsie with was Atlanta. And Atlanta was an expansion candidate in the early 1960s. So if the A's had moved there or if they had expanded in there, the Braves would be still the Milwaukee Braves. And the legacy of the championship of 1957 would be much easier to gauge amongst Milwaukee fans. But instead, it sort of sits there as this bizarre island. There has been a Milwaukee World Series champion, just not the Brewers. The Brewers are currently in first place by a game and a half over the Cubs, as of this recording. 
Cubs are sub-500, like the Indians. They're, they're only a game and a half back. The Cubs are going to win that division. The Indians are going to win their division. I'm sorry, Minnesota and Milwaukee fans. Both your teams could be wildcard contenders, but the Cubs and the Indians, all the things have gone bad for those teams, and they're still only, what, a game and a game and a half out. Uh, doesn't look good. Now, Milwaukee is in first place. I'll give them credit for that. Uh, Milwaukee could very well take advantage over some underachieving teams in the National League and could sneak into the wild card. They're in first place now, but I, as I said, I don't think they'll hold on to that. But the fact that their main contenders for the wild card at this point are the Rockies, Dodgers, and Diamondbacks. So it's a lot of overachieving teams could be participating for the wild card, which does look good for the Milwaukee Brewers. And if they do win the World Series, then it'll be a lot easier to say when the last Milwaukee World Championship was, it's 2017. So in the past, the Brewers have had big, big pockets of nothing. They had a long time where they couldn't put a winning product on the field. They were like the Pirates going over a decade with outputting a winning team on the field. And like the Pirates, their last winning season for a while was in 1992. The Brewers used to be a place where there were a lot of stars, but they were also a place where they were kind of scrappy and they appealed to that blue-collar quality of the city. It's not amazing how we put the city's personality on the players. That you know, If you play for the Brewers, a Brewers team that wins is scrappy and blue-collar. A Yankee team that wins is glamorous and, and metropolitan. A Los Angeles team that wins is, you know, like big shiny movie stars. But, you know, if the exact same Brewer team played in New York and the exact same Yankee team played in Milwaukee, you would look at the Brewers of the past, oh, they're big shiny stars and the, this Yankee team have tough, scrappy players like, you know, blue-collar players like Derek Jeter and Paul O'Neill. But I digress. There are not a lot of Brewer teams to point to as the teams that should have won. They've, you know, they had postseason uh, runs in 2008 when they rented CC Sabathia, pitched him virtually every single day, and he pitched him into the postseason. And to be fair, they gave the Phillies a decent run at it. You know, if it wasn't for a grand slam by Victorino off of Sabathia. You know, the Brewers would have had a chance to defeat the Phillies, and the Phillies wound up being the world champion. But I'm not going to pick 08. The team in, in 2011 is one I really thought long and hard of. A big reason is it's just because everything seemed to be lining up. Ryan Braun was the MVP, and we didn't know what an asshole he was then. Prince Fielder was still there. They had rented Zach Greinke. They had a decent team that they put, their, put him around, and their main obstacle, when they won a surprising NL Central title, their main obstacle was the fact that they were in the National League and the Phillies were in the National League and the Phillies were a juggernaut with Halliday, Lee, Hamels, Oswalt, Howard, Rollins, uh, Utley. I mean, the team was unbeatable, except they were beaten. one nothing in that Game 5 by St. Louis. And all of a sudden, Brewer fans woke up saying their biggest obstacle to the World Series had been eliminated. And basically, they had home field advantage 
through game seven of the World Series. They woke up at that game and realized, holy crap, after winning a walk-off series against the Arizona Diamondbacks in extra innings, with Niger Morgan getting the game-winning hit, they suddenly had a clear path to the World Series. And they won game one. It's like, God, here we go. We got to just win three out of the next six games, and they're in. And as it turned out, that St. Louis Cardinal team didn't have the best regular season record, probably didn't have the most talent on the team, but they didn't. They would not lose. They did not lose against the Cardinals. They did not lose against the Brewers, and we saw they had a never-die mentality against the Texas Rangers. I think the fact that that team in Miller Park with a sense of, you know, years and years of being a doormat and finally winning and finally having that big old spotlight and defeating some of the big market teams at, at, with, of, against all odds. Not to go all Phil Collins, but to, against all odds. That team winning the World Series would have been a glorious way to point at the way that the 2010s have un, have have unfolded. You know, teams like the Brewers and the Royals were shorthand for teams that had no chance to win the World Series. And they would have won it. Except they lost in six to St. Louis in that weird slugfest of game six at home. But that's not the team I'm going to say. Because when you say Brewers... When you say the legacy of the Brewers, part of what this is is the collection of the players that you look at and you say, wow, this collection of players are the ones that I think of with this team, the most beloved. And it really came down to when they were an American League team. Sorry, I still think of the Brewers as an American League team. And a team with you know, multiple Hall of Famers, like the two homegrown Hall of Famers and Robin Yount and with Paul Molitor and the beloved sluggers like Cecil Cooper, like Gorman Thomas and the Pete Vukovic's of the world and everyone like that. When you look at the teams, those are the teams, and not to sound like I'm pining for the 80s, but those are the most beloved teams in Brewers history. Playing in the same park that Henry Aaron called his home. And with that group, I really narrowed it down to three. Three potential teams of the Brewers that should have won. Now, the obvious one to pick is, of course, 1982. They had a lead in Game 7 of the World Series. Relatively late. With their Cy Young Award winner on the mound. And the fact that Raleigh Fingers was injured and not available to pitch in the World Series meant they had to rely on relievers not named Raleigh Fingers, and that's a bad thing. That year, they, they squeaked out past the Baltimore Orioles to win the division. They squeaked past a superior California Angels team to win the pennant, facing that 82 Cardinal team. And you look at the, the slugging numbers of Simmons, Cooper, Young, Molitor, Ben Ogilvy, Gorman Thomas, even Don Money 
hitting 16 home runs and 313 plate appearances. And you looked at, you had your Caldwells and Vukovic and Haas. And you had this wonderful, wonderful team that fell just short. Just short. Harvey's wall bangers as Harvey Keene replaced Buck Rogers as the manager of the team. That's a big candidate right there. An odd candidate, one you may not think of, but one that I think is worth bringing up is the 1987 Brewers, who started the season with that unbelievably long winning streak and with Tom Treblehorn as the manager, had a great combination of young Brewers like B.J. Surhoff, like Teddy Higuera, like Glenn Braggs, you know, former uh, you know, friend of the podcast, Jim, you know, Glenn Braggs. And the, you know, the likes of the young, you know, the Dan Plesaks and the Chris Bozios of the world. But also, Cecil Cooper was still there. Robin Yount was still there. You know, uh, Paul Molitor had one of the seasons of his life, including the huge hitting streak that he had. You had a great combination of the young and the old and starting the season in such a thrilling way. And, in a, and you take a look at the team that wound up going 91-71. and 71. They had a better record than the Minnesota Twins, who wound up winning the World Series. But by the way that the divisions were aligned then, the Brewers were in the East, and the Twins were in the West. And so the Brewers, with their 91 wins, were playing golf, while the Twins, with their 85 wins, won the World Series. And that would have been a great way with having young players and players left over from the 82 World Champion, or 82, sorry, uh, American League Championship. What the hell league do they play in? That would have been an amazing moment for that team. And you can point to that team and say that probably would have meant more to, to Milwaukee than it would have to Minnesota. Because it would have been a culmination of many, many things with the Twins. Of the Brewers. God, I'm getting really, really, I'm getting wound up. This is what happens when you don't do them every day. But do you know what team I'm going to say? And boy, Cubs fan with an eight is going to be mad at me because he doesn't like it when I pick teams in the same year. I already had the 1981 Cincinnati Reds with the best record in baseball that year, but were denied entrance to the playoffs because of the bogus split season they did then. I'm going 81. Now, the 81 Brewers had the best record in the American League East. Because of the split season, they had to play a division series against the New York Yankees. That was the first time this team ever made it to the postseason. Buck Rogers was the manager. You had Simmons, who didn't have a great year, but that's a pop. You had Cecil Cooper, who had a great year and pop. Uh, you had Gorman Thomas, you had Ben Ogilvy, you had Molitor, who was in the outfield that year, you had uh, Robin Yount, you had Roy Howell, you had a bunch of really tremendous players who were on that team, and you also had Vukovic, Caldwell, Haas, a bunch of the players you're expecting, and you had Raleigh Fingers, who wound up winning the Cy Young Award and the MVP with his amazing season. And I look at that team that first team, and I saw all those players firing on all cylinders. And if that team had won it, 
with fingers on the mound and with kind of a promise of many titles to come. I think that that is the team that would have, I don't know, changed the identity of the Milwaukee Brewers in one fell swoop. The Brewers lost the first two games at home to the Yankees, 5-3, 3-0. And then came from behind to win game three, won game four, but lost game five, seven to three. That first game where they lost five to three, which, you know, the they should have won. You know, the the Yankees took a four two lead early, but the you know, the Brewers rallied, made it, you know, made it five three, made it four three at one point, and they had a chance to win. And in fact they had the tying run at the plate. And both Jim Gantner and Paul Molitor struck out. And the Yankees wound up going to the World Series. That Brewers team, with a championship under its belt, would have ushered in 1980s baseball in 1981 and would have possibly have set the team up as the team to beat moving forward. Maybe even changing the culture. Having that early title early on, just ask Raleigh Fingers and what happened when the A's won in 1972. There was a sense of, this is our league. We can win this every year if we could. And the split season forced the one game, the the, uh, division series playoff, which was ludicrous. You should have had the Brewers versus the Billy Martin A's. Raleigh Fingers going up against the A's. How beautiful would that have been? How dramatic would that have been? Well, either way, as I look at the Milwaukee Brewers in first place, like the Minnesota Twins, and what a risk it can be to move forward and act like, okay, we're contenders, even on a surprise season, I will say this. The 1981 Brewers, Cubs fan with an eight, you're going to have to deal with this. The 1981 Brewers... That's the team that should have won. So I'm going to get through these. Some of them will be little mini episodes. But I want to talk about this and make up for you who felt that missing a week of podcasts with me was too much to handle. So go to sullybaseball.com and look for the updates for the upcoming new version of the Sully Baseball podcast, which should be a lot of fun. Uh, You can go to iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Stitcher, Instagram. As always, I'm everywhere. The music is by Ted Thacker and Patrick Kaliski. Talking philosophy and breaking down Minnesota and Milwaukee. Don't you ever accuse me of East Coast bias. This has been the Sully Baseball Daily Podcast. Launching this on the 13th day of June 2017. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. By all means, call me Sully.